Thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Good evening and welcome to this Bible study on the book of Revelation. What I would like to do tonight um, is go back on what we've seen last week. I know what we've seen, for those of you who are with us, uh, the main two chapters of Deuteronomy uh, Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26 are very, very difficult chapters and they focus on they focused on the blessings and the curses associated with the covenant. And we've went through them, uh, if nothing else, to really understand that in God's plan there is no distinction made between those who are, in a sense, within the covenant and those who are outside of the covenant when it comes to His justice. Because one of the things that could come to mind when you read the the Exodus, and you're familiar with the plagues of Egypt, is that, well, God treated the Egyptians this way, and He favored the Israelites. Well, hopefully those of you who were here last week had gone that notion out of your mind by now. Because the, the curses that are applied within the covenant are far worse than anything God did in Egypt. And we focused mainly on those curses because we live in a time where people are under this impression that God is easygoing. That by definition everybody is going to heaven. That by definition God is going to allow us to do whatever we want. And that by definition we really don't have to work at our salvation with fear and trembling as St. Paul told us. We live in a time that is extremely dangerous not because of the difficulty in the world that we have today. We've always had them. We'll have them till the end. Those will always be there. But it's dangerous primarily because there is this notion that has seeped into the church that all you need to all you need to be saved is to be to be basically a good guy, whatever that means, whatever you define that to mean. That relativism is extremely dangerous. So we had to focus on that to really understand who God is. Because in one sense, the book of Revelation as the book itself says it in the very first verse, the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ. God has given him to let us know what is to come. Right? It's the book of Revelation. In other words, it's the book through which you dis- discover who Christ is. It is also intended for that purpose. 
And it is very important for us to worship God, but to worship God in truth, as he told the Samaritan woman. In spirit and in truth. Because when he met her at the well, he told her, when she asked him, we worship here in Samaria, you worship down in Jerusalem. And Jesus unambiguously told her, salvation comes from the Jews. For you worship that which you do not know. Idolatry isn't only worshipping false gods, it is worshipping the true God, the false way. That is also called idolatry. And that's what the Samaritans were doing. They were worshipping the true God, the God of Israel, but the wrong way. And how so? Not because they were worse people than those in Judea, not because they were, that conduct in a sense was much, much um, you know, more evil than those in Judea. That's not true. They were worshipping God falsely because they were not following His commandment. He said, you worship me in the temple in Jerusalem. They said, we worship you here in Samaria, on Mount Gerizim. Because they decided how to worship God, they made their own rules, and they followed it. They were found idolatrous by Christ. And that is true today, even more so than it was before. So any of us, any one of us, in our own ways, in our own little ways, in our own secret ways, when we decide to follow the Christ that pleases us, the Christ that meets our criteria, the Christ that corresponds to what we like, we're doing like the Samaritans. And God knew that, and therefore in the covenant, He basically put the mechanism that would allow for us to discover our errors and to come back to Him. That's the, that was our focus last week. I'd like to, though, balance it a little bit this week. Because at the end of the day, if, if truth be told, if I were to do what I really would please me, I'd be speaking mostly about God's mercy. But I think in order to balance it a little bit, I'd like to speak a little bit about God's mercy in a way that maybe may prove helpful for you. These are two uh, passages of scripture that I really strongly recommend you use for prayerful meditation. The first one is a favorite songs of mine, which is also part of the evening prayers uh, in the Maronite church. It's Psalm 91. Um, turn to Psalm 91 quickly. And let's go over it. Um, I think it is a beautiful psalm that also harmonizes with the prayer we heard with Father Nabil a little bit earlier. That's why I like to usually end my, my day in my own uh, prayer time. My own prayer time is at the evening because I'm a night owl. Uh, I don't do well in the morning. So I always spend my personal prayer time in the evening. And it's a beautiful way for me to close my day. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High who abides in the shadow of the Almighty, will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler you will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, 
nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. That's Psalm 91 for those of you who just joined us. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right, side, right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your refuge, the most high your habitation, no evil shall befall you. No scourge come near your tent. For he will give his angels charge of you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you dash your foot against the stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he cleaves to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. It is a beautiful song to, to meditate on. And the more you meditate on it, the more peace and quiet will be part of your daily life. The other uh, passage I'd like to bring to your attention, I'm not going to comment on this, otherwise we will not do anything else, is found in the Book of Wisdom. And this passage, Wisdom chapter 9, can be applied equally well to, um, I'm sorry, 7, Wisdom chapter 7. Equally well to Christ as St. Louis de Montfort did, or in our case, Our Lady. Beginning with verse 22. For in her there is a spirit that is intelligent, holy, unique, manifold, subtle, mobile, clear, unpolluted, distinct, invulnerable, loving the good, keen, irresistible, beneficent, humane, steadfast, sure, free from anxiety, free from anxiety, all-powerful, overseeing all, and penetrating through all spirits that are intelligent and pure and most subtle. For wisdom is more mobile than any motion. Because of her pureness, she pervades and penetrates all things. For she is a breath of the power of God and a pure emanation of the glory of the Almighty. Therefore nothing defiled gains entrance into her. For she is a reflection of eternal light, a spotless mirror of the working of God and an image of His goodness. Though she is but one, she can do all things. And while remaining in herself, she renews all things. In every generation she passes into holy souls and makes them friends of God and prophets. For God loves nothing so much as the man who lives with wisdom. For she is more beautiful than the sun and excels every constellation of the stars. Compared with the light she is found to be superior, for it is succeeded by the night. But against wisdom, evil does not prevail. She reaches mightily from one end of the earth to the other, and she orders all things well. I loved her and sought her from my youth, and I desired to take her for my bride, and I became enamored of her beauty. She glorifies her noble birth by living with God, and the Lord of all loves her. Again, 
a beautiful passage that can help bring a sense of balance to those passages we've been reading all through wonderful, wonderful passages of point of meditation. A um, couple of more things I'd like to talk about in reference to what we said last time. One question came up last week and I did not answer it. Um, remember we went through those, those blessings and those curses referenced in these two chapters. And they are definitely based on a pattern. Both blessings and curses addresses the physical world around us because we depend upon it to make a living. Then they touch upon our own personal being, our children, our family, and finally our soul. They follow pretty much the same outline as we found in the, in the uh, curses of Egypt. From the exterior to the interior. And one question came up, and that was, do those still apply today? Are they still applicable today? And can we recognize them? The answer to the first question is yes, they are still applicable today. In fact, if you study the history of mankind, you will see those same afflictions, those same scourges, repeatedly presented to us. However, it is extremely difficult for us to predict with any level of surety that this or that is going to happen. In fact, most of the time, we can recognize them after the event has have already taken place. Most of the time, we have to wait for the completion of the event to look back and see the finger of God, so to speak. But definitely, God uses those same events to continuously continuously enforce the covenant. For there's something that's very important to remember. Although the new covenant is in effect, it has not abrogated or annulled the old for those who chose to live under the old. Not all of us live under the new covenant in a sense. Why? Because not all of us have accepted the salvation of Christ. So therefore, those same curses of the Old Covenant still apply today. They have not stopped. The same blessings still apply today. They have not stopped. And it takes a discerning mind to look at the world at, at large and understand that God is actually in action across the entire globe. And to avoid the two extremes. One that says that God has nothing to do with what's going on, and the other that says the end of the world is around the corner. The, the, the path of the middle basically says no. I mean, it can be that the end of the world is around the corner. At one point, that statement is going to be true. At one point, somewhere someone will say, tomorrow is the end of the world, and tomorrow he'll be right. It will be the end of the world. But it is not wise on our part to assume that simply because we're going through what we consider to be difficult or extraordinary times or times of afflictions or times where the church is being um, is being um, rejected or resisted for us to conclude that therefore the end of the world has come by the way there are a couple of things we know about the end of the world one of which is that the Jews must convert 
The end of the world will not come before the conversion of all the Jews. That's based on St. Paul, Corinthians chapter 10. He's very emphatic about it. Alright? And today, I don't see the Jews converting in large numbers. Do you? Alright. So any talk about the end of the world is effectively escapism. It's a way to escape from our responsibilities as Christians, as Catholics today, to face the world and say, the message of Jesus Christ is still relevant and we have to bring it to others. It is our duty. And to be very optimistic. To be very optimistic. To be joyful. Not to be afraid and not to be anxious. That's the crux of the way Catholics look at the book of Revelation. It's an optimistic message at the end of the day. Christ triumphs. And he doesn't triumph just at the end of the world. He triumphs every day through his church. That's what we need to understand and keep in mind. Alright? So we went through, through these blessings and curses just to make sure that we understand that the covenant is a serious thing and we are in covenant with God. And therefore, on a personal basis, our own behavior must be regulated by that covenant. And the best way to do that is to avail ourselves of the, of the sacrament of confession on a regular basis. Because this is how we really tell God, I'm taking you seriously. Alright, very good. What I would like to talk, to talk to you about now, moving forward, is this notion of symbolism in Scripture. And the reason why I'm switching over to talk about symbolism in Scripture is because right after we talk about symbolism in Scripture, we're going to talk about the prophets. And they use symbolism in a very, very heavy-duty way. So I'd like to take a, 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 a pause, so to speak, and talk about symbols in Scripture. The first, thing that, the first observation that many scholars have made, both Catholics and Protestants, they recognize this very readily, is that effectively, in a very realistic sense, we cannot speak of God without using symbols. Just think about that for a second. Our language is a human language. Our language expresses human thoughts. Our language is a projection of our intellectual capacity. Therefore, our language is fundamentally limited to what a human can express. It cannot go beyond it. Right? Okay. God is beyond human. He's divine. We're finite. He's infinite. Our knowledge is limited. He knows all things. We're creatures. Here's the creator. On and on and on. In fact, this, the similarities that we may find between us and God are always dwarfed by the dissimilarities between us and God. There are more differences between God and us than there are actually similarities. One of the most interesting one is that, and it's one that typically is reversed, we tend to think of ourselves as being simple, and God is very complex. The reality is exactly the opposite. We're complex, God is simple. You might say, how so? Well, what do we say God is? That's it. God is love. 
God is love. Fundamentally, God in His nature is simple. We're the ones who are complex. Right? See? Yet, in Scripture, we're attempting to speak about God. Since our words cannot, in and of themselves, in and of themselves convey the nature of God, or give us a true representation of God is, we cannot do that, we have to resort to what? Analogies. Symbols. Right? But it goes even beyond that. God created the universe, all of the universe, as a way to give glory to His name. Therefore, God's glory is truly imprinted upon all of the universe. All of nature, in a sense, is a symbol of God. Just as a painting is a symbol of the painter. You study the painting and you can conclude certain things about the painter. Well, all of nature is like that. And that is not a... It's not a simple philosophical question. It's, it's actually very true. It is a true statement that we can use in our own lives. How so? Well, when, for instance, when we're trying to understand why God would um, afflict someone with ill, and we find that notion to be very difficult, why would God inflict pain on anybody? All you have to do is to think about your children, if you have children, or your parents. You will fall in one of those two categories. If you don't, I'd like to talk to you after. And remember the times when you being a kid were stubbornly wanting to do something that was not good for you. What did your parents do? They effectively inflicted pain on you in one way, shape, or form. And the reason why they've done that is for your own good. But there's a deeper reason why they've done that. They've done it because they're teaching you about God. So the ways of the family, all of the family, is really a symbol, a sacrament, pointing to God. You want to know what God will do? Think about a loving father or mother. You will know what God will do. It's that simple. So the family is, in a sense, a catechism. It is, it is instituted by God to teach you about you and me, to teach us about His love for us. Now, when the family is deformed, when the father and the mother are not doing what they're supposed to do, it makes it very difficult for the children to come to know and love God. And so often, for many children of Catholic families who lived in dysfunctional families, in broken families, the journey back to God typically goes through a healing first. Because if my father was abusive, how could I believe in God the Father? Hmm? And that is where the importance of understanding that we are made of a soul and a body. We're not pure spirits. And the impact, the, the afflictions that we receive in our bodies, color our understanding who God is. And we can't escape it.
So for someone to say, well, how could you just confuse your dad with your with God the Father, that person is thinking of human beings uh, as disincarnated spirits floating around. It doesn't work this way. Alright? It doesn't work this way. And oftentimes, when God starts to call us back to Himself, He gets us to go through a healing period where we have to heal the image we have of Him. Why? Because we have to adore Him in spirit and in truth. So everything in nature points to God. Our family points to God. Our own bodies, the way we constitute it as male and female, the, the, the differences in the sexes and the meaning of that, the fact that we, in a, in a marital relationship, are supposed to be gifts to each other, a gift. Our bodies are a gift to the other. That's the meaning of the body. It is a gift. Now this is what, not what you hear today, but that's the fundamental basic truth about the family. It's a gift. And whether one is married, living in a marital relationship, or one is living in a consecrated life as a priest or a nun, in both instances there is another party to whom you're giving yourself. No one lives in solitude. That, that free gift of self teaches us about what? Christ. We learn about, uh, about, uh, we learn about God in mo many ways, but the universe and the family and ourselves are all symbols of God. Therefore, symbolism in Scripture should not be something that... Um, we should not think of symbolism in Scripture as something exceptional. It is the ordinary means through which Scripture speaks because Scripture is speaking of the divine using human language. Another important point, oftentimes in, in, in scripture, symbols may have multiple meanings. Multiple meanings. You can't, it's typically a mistake to take a meaning, a symbol, and a me map it linearly to just one meaning. One example, there are many of those, I'll give you a couple. Lion. When I say lion, what do you think of? How is the lion used in scripture? What does the lion represent? Right? The lion of Judah. Right? But what else does the lion represent? Pardon? Courage. But who else does the lion represent? Let me put it this way. Pardon? We said Jesus. Who else? The devil. Saint Peter. For the devil is like a lion prowling about right, finding someone whom he may devour right now in the psalm that we read psalm 91 the psalm tells us also that verse 13 you will tread on the lion and the adder well certainly we're not treading on Christ right so don't ascribe one meaning to a symbol and then bolt it down using some magic glue. You'll get yourself in trouble. You have to have some, you know, a little bit of a free hand with symbolism. They really depend on the context in which they're used. Another example would be um, Solomon. Solomon represents who? One represent, Solomon points to who? Solomon points to Christ. In many ways, because he was the only king who was a priest as well, because he offered sacrifice when he built the temple. And he had what from God? 
as we just read. He had wisdom, right? And wisdom, by the way, doesn't simply mean understanding. Wisdom means discernment, means power over the evil one. According to the rabbis, Solomon was able to exorcise demons because of the wisdom he possessed. Right? So wisdom is much grander than we think of it, usually. But he had that. So therefore, in his persona, Solomon represents Christ. Yet in his latter life, who does he represent? The Antichrist. Right? He's a form of, he's a type of an Antichrist. Because he did everything that the law said a king should not do. Okay? Bathsheba, his mother, is another good example. On the one hand, who does she represent? Mary. Why? Because when she comes to Solomon and asks him for something, Solomon says, I will do whatever you ask of me, and he makes her sit at his right hand side. And she was called the Gebira, the queen, the queen mother. Kings back then chose their mothers as queens because they had so many wives. Right? So in that sense, Mary, Bathsheba points to Mary. But when you think about how Solomon was, not, not Solomon, but how she came to be married to David, right, she basically represents the antithesis of Mary. The exact opposite. So in scripture, typically symbols will have a dual meaning, or different meanings. And we can't ascribe to them just one meaning and stick to it. We have to understand the, concept, the context in which that symbol appears. Another important point is that symbolism in scripture is analogical, not realistic. So for instance, um, in our time, if I want to represent, if I work, let's say, at, a, at Boeing, I will be given what? What do I have on the table? I'll, I'll have a miniature airplane. airplane. If you look at the airplane, the miniature one that I have, is, it is a realistic copy of the big thing, right? Puzzles tend to be realistic copies. The map that we use in our homes tend to be a realistic copy of the world out there. We use realistic symbolism. All right? In many different ways, our world, our imagery today is based on realistic symbolism. Not so in scripture. It's analogical. And by this I mean it points it's something like something else. But the like can be on many different levels. For instance, we speak of the church as being the bride of Christ. We speak of the soul as being the bride of Christ. But that does not mean that these relationships are completely 100% a copy, smaller or bigger, of a marital relationship. Right? There is analogy at play here. And we have to discern what is being indicated to this analogy. So it's very important to remember that with scripture. Don't put a realistic filter on it. I'll give you a very good example why we have to be careful with that. We're going to talk about it a little bit later, but I think it's a very good example. When in, Je in Revelation chapter 21, we read about the new Jerusalem, the new city coming down from heaven. All right? St. Saint, Saint John gives the dimension of that city. He says it's a perfect cube which is 1,200 stadia in all sizes, right? Well, that corresponds to about 
1,200 miles. 1,200 miles long, 1,200 miles wide, 1,200 miles high. Anybody has a problem with that? That's our problem. We filter it through a realistic understanding of analogy. We have to be careful because you really get into weird explanations, right? And we don't want to do that. So keep that in mind. Now, so symbolism in scripture is not a code, right? It's not, it's not oh, this means that. You don't read scripture and says, oh, well, there is, a, you know, there's a lamb here, there's a lamb here, there's a lamb here, there's a lamb here. I can map all that to Christ. There's a line here, there's a line here, there's a line here, there's a line here. I mean, I'm about that all up to, you know, that's, that's Christ also. You do that, you're going to come up with a really funny reading of scripture. See, the, the, you can't do that, right? You have to be careful. It is evo evocative, it is complex, and it is poetic. Why? Because really, when a writer of scripture or when someone, um, some of the ancients were trying to convey an idea about God, the idea was complex. Complex, not as in difficult, complex as in multifaceted. Let me explain what I mean. We do that today. You might think this is, oh, this is very esoteric stuff. It's not. It's the most natural thing to do. We do that today. Give you a simple example. Um, I hope all you guys who are present here will remember that in uh, a week from now, it's February 14th. You better do what you have to do. And as part of what you have to do, what do you usually do? What do you offer your, your spouse? Chocolate. That's not what I was thinking about, although I don't mind chocolate. I thought chocolate went the other way. But, <laughs> okay, flowers. What kind of flowers usually you offer? Alright, stop for a second. Think about that. Why do you offer a rose? Pardon? It's beautiful. It's, yeah, yes, yes. It symbolizes love. But why does it symbolize love? What's, why, why? It's beautiful. It, it smells good. Beautiful. Flowers have been described as smiles from God. Beautiful. So you notice it's poetic, it's evocative, it's multifaceted, it's complex. That's why you don't give your wife a beautiful, realistic image of a rose. Would you do that? Well, why? Let's assume that the image is actually more expensive than the rose, not less expensive. Would you give your wife a painting of a rose? Why? It's not the real thing. It's not the real thing. So, so why? Why? Because anything else loses of its power the symbolic power of representing what you're trying to convey, which goes beyond words, which is love. So you're using a symbol of nature that God created to represent that which you cannot convey otherwise. That's what symbols in scripture do. And my own word for it is it's iconic. It's an icon. And icons are for that purpose. Alright? So our approach to symbolism must be very careful then. It follows therefore that symbols 
have an irreducible complexity. You can't reduce the symbol, the, the, the symbol to, its, um, to its explanation, right? For instance, let's go back to the rose. Instead of, going, instead of presenting a rose to your wife, you go to your wife and say, Honey, um, um, you're beautiful, you smell good, um, oh, you're full of life, you have a beautiful smile. Is this going to work? No. You can't, rep even though you've given an explanation, right? You've explained what the rose is. Doesn't work, does it? Why? Because the rose cannot be reduced to any explanation you may give. Why? Because it's really not the rose. It is the love that the rose symbolizes, which therefore can never be reduced to words. You understand? Likewise, symbols. So when we... When we start delving into the book of Revelation, we should not have as an expectation that we're going to somehow decode it. Then when we're done, we, the book has revealed all its secrets to us, and now we know everything that needs to be known about it, and then we can throw it away. No. We have to approach it the way we approach a rose, contemplatively. We're going there to receive from God what God wills to re reveal to us through this book in ways that are compatible and harmonious with the rest of the truth of scripture and the tradition of the church. You understand? So that's very important to keep in mind as we approach these symbols. Now, symbols and scriptures are structured typologically, meaning that they follow types. And for something to be a type, it usually has three uh, aspects, three qualities. It has a literal historical meaning that gives us all the way back to our four senses. Every symbol in scripture has typically a historical reality behind it. Meaning that it comes from something real. We don't use fanciful stuff in scripture to represent some truth. We use real things. You understand what I'm saying? So for instance, Adam is a representation of Christ. Adam was real. Alright? Exodus, the crossing of Egypt, is a representation of baptism. That crossing was real. It is reality that is pointing to a higher reality. Not fanciful imagination pointing to reality. That's very important. That's why we have the literal sense of scripture that is the basis, the foundation upon which we have to understand the rest. The second important point that we have to make here is that it is divinely instituted. We don't make those types. God makes them. Right? It's divinely instituted. So, um, God created Adam from the dust of the earth to symbolize a higher reality, which is what? Which is that the body of Christ will be formed from the flesh of the virgin. Therefore, earth... All of earth is a pointer, is a symbol of the virgin. Because when earth was formed, earth was good. Alright? So you see that in every instance, we're dealing with something that God has divinely instituted to tell us something about himself. He tell, he, he's telling us something about himself. And just as those types are there for us to discover, 
So it is also with scripture. It is there for us to discover. Because the pedagogy of God, the way God deals with us, is that He never takes away our responsibility. God wants us to grow up and become mature children of His. He does not want to babysit us. And that is why oftentimes people wonder, well, why isn't God answering my prayer? Why isn't God doing this or that? We treat God as Santa. We want him to come, take away our problem, and then just go away. If he does that, it will not be to our benefit at the end of the day. It is far better for him to help us learn. One symbol of that, incidentally, is that of the eagle. How many of you are familiar with, this, with, this, with a song that comes from the text of Isaiah? And I will bear you up on eagle's wings, right? The interesting thing, the really interesting thing about that particular hymn, you're, you're familiar with that song? Yeah. And the notion is that God will bear us up on eagle's wings, right? What's really interesting is that our understanding of that symbol is very romantic. We understand it as God stooping down like a big eagle, and we're climbing on the eagle, and then we're flying out there in the clouds and the blue sky, and it's a wonderful thing to behold, and God is doing all the work, and we're just enjoying it. Remember, what, but, but that's fanciful. Why is it fanciful? Because he said, I will bear you up on eagle's wings. He didn't say, I'll bear you up on goose's wings, or on duck's wings, or on a jungle jet. Right? So there's something about the eagle that he has in mind. So what do we have to do? We better figure out what eagles do, right? Which we typically don't do. Because as Catholics, we tend to coast. We're just coasting. Okay, I'll bear you up on eagles. What does an eagle do? So what do we do? We look at eagles dealing with their children, right? Because that seems to be appropriate. Well, here's what Ma Eagle does when she bears her little ones on her wings. Ma Eagle will grab one of the little ones and she will fly as high, as high as she can. Yes. And then she drops the little one to teach him how to fly. So the first time she drops him, he's not having a good ride. Because he's dropping down like a rock. And she waits and waits and waits until the very last moment. And then she plunges right down and picks him up before he breaks his neck. And guess what she does? She does it again. So I will bear you up on eagle's wings. That's what he's got in mind. Okay? That's reality. We look at it and what, what is God doing to the eagle? He's symbolically teaching us about how he deals with us. Doesn't that feel more realistic? How many of you felt that God was carrying you up and then you're just coasting and everything's cool? How many of you had that experience? I just want to know. Well, it happens right from time to time, right? Right before the drop. Right? How many of you felt that God will wait till the very last minute and then He will wait another half hour before He answers your prayer? That's why. I knew a family in Canada who had no house of their own, no telephone, no cars, no bank accounts, nothing. They owned nothing. I mean nothing. The man was living like that. He decided to live the Franciscan way, layman, and never owned anything. 
And then he was praying in the, in the retreat house, trying to discern what God wants from him. And he heard a voice that said, go out, your wife is walking by. He went out, looked at the woman crossing the hall, and he went back in and said, her? Because he just had a, you know, a really uh, very um, animated fight with her the day before over an argument. And they were not even married. So eventually, they got married. And he asked the question, do I continue living like this? And the answer was yes. And the woman said, all right, I'm willing to do that, but you take care of my kids with college. They had four kids. I was at a retreat house. The, one of the gals were actually babysitting our kids. We sat with her and we just talked to her. So how do they live? Well, people loan them their homes. They live from one house to the other. And they don't know what's going to come next. They have no clue. They don't know. And I said, isn't that nerve-wracking to them like this? She said, yeah. God will make you wait till the very last second, and he will, he will wait another half hour, and then he will tell you what he's going to do next. So, symbolism is always based in reality. One of the problems we have is that we don't roll, we don't roll out our sleeves, and we need to dig into understanding reality first, so we can understand the symbols and its meaning. And we have to do that. So there are types. Types according to persons. Adam, I just alluded to him being a type. Abraham is a type. Joseph is a type. Jonah is a type. Historical types. Events in history which are symbols of themselves of the way God acts with that. Exodus is one. Right? Uh, the kingdom of David is another. The exile of the Jews is a third. Etc. Those are historical events that in themselves carry a meaning that goes far beyond what these events represent. Then ritual types, the altar of the offerings, the priesthood, the tabernacle, the temple liturgy, all of which we're ignorant of. And we need those to understand our own liturgy and understand Revelation. Alright, as far as Revelation is concerned, there are seven categories of types, seven groups, you will, of symbols that we have to go through. And I didn't, make, I didn't make, make up that seven, it just came up naturally, I don't think it has any particular meaning, by the way. Just that it happens to be seven groups. You can group it differently. The first one is numbers. The first group is numbers. Numbers play a major role. Two, three, four, six, seven, eight, ten, twelve. And we need to understand how these work. I'll see if I have a little bit of time tonight to go through them. I'm not sure. Then the second one is... Um, the cosmos, the universe at large, sun, stars, moon, the zodiac. The zodiac plays a very important role in the book of Revelation. Not the zodiac as in astrology and you know what sign you are, but the zodiac as signs in heaven pointing to God. There's nothing wrong with the zodiac by itself. There's all these symbols that we saw in heaven, and they play a major role, you will see when we get to it. But the interpretation that we assign to them, which is that you know, those stars impact our lives, is sinful. Because it's an adoration of the creature rather than the creator. So any one of you reading your zodiac, stop. Okay? If you have questions about that, we can take them later. Then the third one is nature. What we call acts of gods. Nat natural event, earthquakes, thunder, lightning, um, hail... We're going to go through those. So I said one is numbers, two is the cosmos, three are um, natural events, four are precious stones. 
We need to understand those because they appear all over in the book of Revelation. Five are animals. I don't need to tell you about animals because all these, can, you know, all these animals in, in the book of Revelation, right? Five are animals. Six are weapons of war. The sword, the bow, the arrows, trumpets. And seven colors. White, green, red. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through them. We're going to go through all these all these groups and get at least a basic understanding of what they all mean. So what I'm going to do now is, uh, depending on how much time I got, because, okay, I got about nine minutes left, if I was to stick to an hour. Last time I got you to sit through one an hour and 20 minutes. I'm not going to repeat that. I'm going to go through some of the numbers very briefly and then we'll deal, delve into them a little bit more next week. One. One as in uh, means the, the, the first, as in the firstborn. So firstborn is the first that opens, the first male that opens the womb. Not necessarily the only one, right? First, and then the first doesn't imply second. Firstborn doesn't mean there's going to be secondborn. Only means the first male that opens the womb. But it also means the head. The first is also the head. Okay? So, for instance, to give you an example, which is uh, really interesting, if you turn to John, I said I'm going to take nine minutes. I'm not, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do that, but I'll try. All right. In John, in his, at the beginning of his gospel, in the beginning was the word. That word beginning, can, the Hebrew word for it can be translated by in the start, in the first, or in the head. All right? And both meanings apply here. And John does that all the time. All the time. Okay? So that's one example where first and head both apply. All right? Two. The number two. Um, two, appear, two appears about 962 times in Scripture, 17 times in the book of Revelation. It always refers to unity, agreement, accord, those meanings usually are what two is meant by. Um, and I'll give you some references. We'll go through it again. But essentially, the reason why you need two witnesses, right? Because you need two point of view who are in agreement to represent the truth. So two always or typically will refer to agreement, unity, accord. Three, three signifies God's purpose and will. Three is the is God's will that is going to take place. So for instance, when God appeared to Abraham, Abraham to announce to him the, the, the birth of uh, the conception of Isaiah, he appeared as three angels. Um, <clears throat> three also, as I told you in Hebrew, is uh, the superlative. If you want to say uh, better, uh, good, better, best, you'll say good, 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 good. Right, repeated three times. So it's the completion of the, uh, the uh, seal of approval, the f finality in that sense. And, um, and we'll, again, we'll go through some of the examples hopefully ne next week. Four is a representation of the Gentiles, the earth or the land. The reason is that an altar has four corners and the earth is symbolically viewed as an altar of sacrifice 
for humans to give their lives as gift to God. That's the ultimate purpose of a sacrifice, right? So that's why four represents the, the earth, the land. In Revelation you have the four horses, you have the four angels that are holding the four winds, and all that refers to completion of, of uh, the Gentiles and everybody else, the universality of the message. Uh, six. Six is a number that represents... No, I'm skipping five. I, I'm skipping five. Five has a specific meaning, uh, and we will come back to it, but five represents is one representation for Israel because it's five books of Moses right? five books of Moses but it's not as important for us as, as six which is work and by extension material things versus spiritual things it's in the sixth day the work of God has been completed creation has been completed it's also been thought as the number of man I prefer to think of it as the, wor- the number of the material world and that every time man falls back into that word he essentially has the number six ascribed to him. And so, if, if that's the case, if six represents the material word, then six, six represents the really the material word, and six, six, six represents that which is only material, right? Therefore, it is in opposition to God, because it's three times that which is not spiritual in that sense. Right, so that's one, one way to deal with the number 666. And we're going to deal with those numbers in this way on a regular basis. Um, not that, again, what I told you earlier is that 666 as a symbol must be rooted in reality. And <clears throat> I'll show you that that reality in the time of St. John is Kaiser Nero. Because, because if you, numerologically, the, the numbers, the letters in Hebrew have numbers associated with them. And when you add up the name of Kaiser Nero, Altogether, you get 666, and I think I mentioned that to you in some in some um, versions of Revelation. They use Caesar Nero, and they ended up with 616 instead of 666. That's why it's one of the most compelling arguments, as far as I'm concerned, to use Nero uh, rather than any other uh, Roman um, emperor, because the 616 doesn't work in the other cases. It works in the case of Nero. So, um, seven. Seven appears 60 times in the book of Revelation. As we said, seven is a sign of the covenant. You hear it oftentimes said that seven is a notion that represents perfection. But it's not really true. It doesn't really work well in scripture to say that seven represents perfection. Why? Because, um, so seven represents perfection because of completeness. Or it's completeness and it's perfect. But it doesn't work this way. Because it is not true that everything that is perfect is complete. One of the most striking examples is that the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and his resurrection are perfect. Would you agree with me? They are, right? Are they complete? Are they complete? According to scripture, they're not. How do we know that? St. Paul. I complete in my flesh what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. It's perfect, it's not complete. So to, to ascribe perfection to seven because of completeness is not accurate. And that's why I think it is more appropriate to think of seven as a number of the covenant, as we've repeatedly seen over and over again. Another good reason is in those texts that we read last time, when God in, in Leviticus 26 tells the Israelites, I will chastise you seven times. Right? I don't think anyone would be thinking about perfection. 
with all these curses God is bringing down upon their necks, right? However, covenantally, it works better. Eight. Eight is the new covenant. It's the new day. It's the day of resurrection. This is the use of it in St. Paul. Very interestingly, very interesting, and it's a very important clue as far as I'm concerned, eight does not appear once in the book of Revelation. St. John never uses it. He's a seven, repeatedly never eight. And we'll, we'll, we'll understand why. I think there is an explanation that would fit the reason why he does that. Ten. Ten and its multiples, ten, one hundred, ten thousand, all these tens are multiples, are, are fullness of that which we're considering. So for instance, in the parable where Jesus says, a woman had ten coins, she lost one, and she went back and found it. And then she rejoiced. When she found it, she had back fully what she, what she had, she got back to that fullness that she had initially, which were ten. But that's why he used ten. So ten is fullness, not perfection, not completeness, fullness of that thing we're considering right now. Pardon? No nine. And then twelve, of course, is Israel, and by extension the church. Alright? And so here's, for example, uh, how, how you uh, work with twelve. You remember the 144,000? We're going to get to it, right? The 144,000 were marked, right? Well, what is 144,000? Pardon? Twelve what? Twelve squared, right? Right. And the way St. John goes about it, we'll see, is that 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from that tribe. Right? He lists 12,000 from each tribe. Is it really 12,000 exactly to the dot? Is that what he had in mind? Here's a simple question. Very simple. It's a vision, right? How did he see 12,000? He's having a vision, right? What does he do? Does he say to God, Pause. I want to count. How does he know it's 12,000 exactly? You see how it doesn't make sense realistically when you stick to perfect numbers and use them literalistically? But what is 12,000? It's 12 times what? Times 1,000. What is 1,000? 10, 10, 10. Fullness, fullness, fullness of 12. Get it? Okay. It's iconic, as I said. It's a symbol representing a reality that in itself points to something much bigger than just 12,000. Oh, it's 12,000. Well, why not 14,000? Why, why not 10? Well, what's up with 12? Well, that's what's up with 12. You break it down into considered parts and you look at it and say, oh, okay, it's 3 times 10. Just so completely full. 12. 12 is a sign of Israel. So when he takes 12,000 from each tribe, he's basically saying, God has not missed any of the ones of the elect of Israel. He brought all of them. Which is very important for us covenantally because he promised that we would bring back the 12 tribes together. Alright? That's how you read it. Have I exhausted the meaning of it? Nah. Not, by, not even by far. Not, I mean, no. No way. I just gave you a basis for uh, an explanation that holds on its own. That makes sense. Alright? That is not fanciful. But I certainly not exhausted the meaning of this. Okay? So, I haven't given you all the references I have here because I'm not gonna, I don't want to hold you longer. That's how we're going to approach those symbols, each one at a time. And I'll show you next time something that I haven't told you, which is I'm going to give you examples where of the usage of those numbers that don't fit the explanation I gave you. Okay? Because as I said earlier, 
a symbol will mean one thing and sometimes another thing and it's opposite. So I don't want you to think, oh, well, all right, now we got the key, we got the code, let's go, no, it's not going to work this way. Right? It's not going to work this way. But at least it's a basis that is fairly well, it matches the reality of the text pretty closely. Not always, not perfectly. All right? So what I would like you to do, moving forward, as we read the, the I would like you to start doing some reading of your own. And here's what I would like you to do. For the next time over, just pick the first, um, go through the first three chapters of Revelation. Alright? Go through the first three chapters of Revelation and just pick out all the symbols you can find. That's all. Just pick out all the symbols. Alright? It'll help you tune yourself to the symbolic nature of this text. And then when we go through the prophets, eventually start seeing that those symbols are echoed. They're present elsewhere in scripture. And that hopefully will help you situate the symbols in a larger context. They don't just belong to Revelation. They belong to all of scripture. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.